Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hey guys, welcome to Punching Out. I am Lou and I'm joined this week by Noah. Hi y'all. And Greg. Hello. And we are happy to reintroduce our Legal Eagle section. We are going to be recapping the Supreme Court decisions of the past year. Well, some Supreme Court, some Department of Labor rule changes. I don't know about you guys, but it was actually kind of surprising to see that most of the things that came down weren't catastrophically terrible or even kind of relevant to labor. And I feel like in the past three years, it's just been terrible as far as labor. Well, there's only so much left to do at this point <laughs> between, especially now that they've got a, it, it is kind of bleak that they didn't even have a 6-3 conservative majority on the court for most of the time that they were busy just destroying what was left of favorable labor law and so on. And now that they do have that majority, it's like, well, there's not that much left to do anyway. Hey, the Department of Labor said Scabby the Rat was okay. That's good news. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so I guess in general unlike the rest of the year it's been middling as far as labor news in Supreme Court and, and just in this very narrow application. Get it? Narrow yeah. because yeah. Yeah. that's what all the rulings are. Yeah. It's hilarious. I'm very good at this, guys. Great. I'm awesome. Setting a real precedent for the rest of this episode. This oh. is good. Okay, so I think let's start with the one that's probably only tangentially related to labor, um, because the specific ruling wasn't about a labor case, um, but it affects class action lawsuits. Um, We've discussed many times on this show about how, given the most recent changes to labor regulation, everything like that, the only options left to force a bad actor like your employer to, into behaving properly is either through arbitration, which huge fan of, you know, that's a joke. We boo that. Um, the only other thing that we can do is class action lawsuits. And the Supreme Court has decided by a 5-4 vote um, that the limit and who can actually join in a class action lawsuit is not as good as you would think it would be. TransUnion LLC versus Ramirez. So basically, this was a case uh, in which a class action lawsuit uh, where a whole bunch of people decided to sue a credit card. Credit Credit bureau. Credit bureau. Yeah, that thing. One of those fake things. Exactly. Um, A credit bureau because these, the credit bureau had listed the, 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 whoever was suing him, very good with words, um, as terrorists and therefore had severe limits on the credit. And there were consequences therein. So Gorsuch said basically that only people who were definitively harmed by this action could actually participate in the suing, not just anybody who also happened to be listed as a terrorist by this credit bureau. Um, Sorry, that that was uh, Kavanaugh, I believe. That's right. They're the same uh, uh, to me. One's they... a little bit more personally reprehensible, but yeah, they're, they're about the same. Okay, I'll give you that. But yeah, they are all garbage, and um, I need to stop there or I will be banned. But, yes. Um, I think we've covered standing on here before, but just to briefly recap, you can only sue if something bad has actually happened to you. You can't sue because you're unhappy or because something bad might happen to you. In Article 3 of the... Uh, the Constitution, the courts are empowered to decide actual cases and controversies. So only something that is a currently being disputed, with very narrow exceptions, can be adjudicated by the courts. The president cannot, as I want to say Washington or Adams tried to do, write a letter over the Supreme Court being like, is this legal? K fakes by, for example. Some state courts do work like that. You can They can issue advisory opinions. But Federal courts are not allowed to do that, and so standing becomes a much more important requirement there. 
And they're basically saying that you didn't lose any money or suffer reputational damage or get physical, get, get your legs broken. Uh, so you cannot sue despite the fact that you do not enjoy being labeled a terrorist by your credit bureau. Right. And, and furthermore, like to me, the, the issue with that is it, it doesn't do anything to prevent future harm, which as not a lawyer is not well, apparently something that's a concern. Well, uh, a, a minority of the plaintiffs, uh, they did allow to, uh, uh, to sue. So it's a narrower, about like a thousand of them. Yeah. Oh, 1,853 of them. So it's possible that in those cases, there will be punitive damages and that would hopefully deter the credit bureau from doing that again. But in reality, I think they just kind of incorporate into the cost of doing business. Yeah. You can't Which not sucks. use a credit bureau. They own everything. It's great. I love this system that we've created. Yeah, Based so, on imaginary numbers. Yep. It's great. Yeah. So tie, to tie this back to labor is it's it's once again uh, removing the teeth for one of the very few mechanisms through which labor can get after an employer. Um, so if Walmart, if I work for Walmart, for example, and Walmart decides to do some kind of stupid policy that could potentially hurt me unless it actually hurts me. There's nothing I can do is basically what this is saying, which I guess is true in many cases. But the fact that it affects class action lawsuits and makes it harder for others to join it and actually fight bad actors like this makes it concerning. There are so few avenues through which you can actually pursue justice. The federal lust for arbitration is, is kind of unseemly and disturbing. You know, arbitration was originally set up to allow merchants to adjudicate their disputes, you know, without the expense of court, but it's now kind of swallowed every other kind of legal rule. The brights, the very small bright side is that the lawyers who would normally be rounding everybody up for a class action lawsuit are instead just kind of going to all these, these large classes of plaintiffs. Um, I think this is a, this is a thing that happened with Uber or Lyft and just getting them all to do arbitration, which is, ending up if you get everyone to do it it's costing way more than defending the class action suit was and so a few of these companies are going back and, and going to being willing to go to court for this so you know okay that's awesome fingers crossed. that's pretty great yeah that's pretty awesome speaking of arbitration um tangentially related but whatever uh did you guys hear about the the guy who sued tesla for discrimination and the arbitration panel actually sided with him and said yeah no this was reprehensible what the heck um, is basically Tesla failed to stop the managers at Tesla from calling this man an N-word, like, to his face, or in general. Uh, and the arbitration actually sided with him. Which, how bad do you have to be for arbitration to actually do that? I mean, that is almost a textbook definition of, like, a racist thing that you can do. So, I, I'm, not, I'm not shocked. Um, right, yeah, like... Know, usually it, it's... it's you can hide behind, you know, oh, this was related to something else, or this manager might have been racist, but he fired this guy for a legitimate reason. But, you know, no. when it's this mask off, there's not much uh, wiggle room. But Tesla, they're going to save everybody. Any day now. The, their latest model, the back doors have no manual release. So if there's a electrical problem, for example, if you were in an accident, there is literally no way out of the uh, back seat. And have they fixed the problem up. yet where the car sets itself on fire like it's an F-35? Because no. that might also be a problem. Well, the thing is, now they can wait for a class action lawsuit. I was going to say, can't wait for the <laughs> class action lawsuit on this one. That's going to be a, a landmark opinion. This is Fight Club stuff, you know? You remember the guy's, the guy's job in the beginning? No. Was, yeah. Oh, no, he's, yeah, he's explaining to the people on the plane that they take the accident and they calculate the cost of likely lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And then if that's less than the cost of the recall, they don't do the recall. Yeah. And that, that was based on some real car cases from the eighties and nineties. Oh yeah. No, a hundred percent. That's, that's absolutely the case. I guess the only other thing I kind of wanted to touch on with this one, and I wanted to get your take on this, Greg, I found it kind of interesting that it was Thomas of all people who dissented from the conservative majority in this case. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with his uh, jurisprudence, but is is that in keeping with kind of his general approach to these things? Thomas's approach is um, eccentric, to put it mildly. 
his 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 point was that uh, this is clearly pretty clearly in the class of stuff that uh, Congress was targeting with this uh, this statute. So that's you know it's originalism, but it's original going originalism going back to you know nineteen seventy and not seventeen seventy. So that is kind of keeping with his jurisprudence, but I it's so difficult to tell with him. He might have just flipped a coin. <laughs> Oh, he's got such a good government, folks. I'm happy. All right. I don't know. I, I, I kind of agree with Thomas that oral arguments are completely pointless. Nobody's ever, nobody ever changes their mind. Oh, yeah, 100%. No, that, that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, it, it's theater. Anyway, Lou, it sounds like you've got another one locked and loaded here. So the other, and probably more interesting and, dire- and directly labor-related ruling was on property rights sort of um <laughs> i i want to let you all know that when we talked about this decision right before we started recording greg informed us that you will not forgive us for subjecting you to this discussion that we're about to have which is what you want to hear from your favorite radio show slash podcast related to labor that you don't want to hear what's coming up next the introduction to my um property law textbook began with the words since the time of Edward the Fourth, and continued <laughs> on from there. So, oh, so Great, this is also sorry. within my competence. We're gonna do this. <laughs> okay, so sorry, I finally found the, the thing I was looking for. So this court, this case is called Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, and basically what it was is the Supreme Court decided in favor of the property owners. So the the nursery, they determined that union representatives can't come onto their property to speak with their laborers without basically paying some kind of compensation. So, or, or I guess in more practical terms, like their permission, uh, which previously um, California law had allowed union representatives to come onto property to talk to laborers a certain number of days and hours a week when laborers weren't actively working. Um, So this ruling basically reverses that and says that, no, union people can't come on grounds and talk to people, which is going to make it a lot harder to organize. In a sector that's already famously hard to organize, I mean... Yeah, a lot of a lot of the labor laws don't apply to agricultural workers or apply differently. Wonder um, why? Yeah, because they reasons. can. Yeah, to preserve the family farm. That's right. Small farmers, sure. the backbone of America. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, as Lou said, this is kind of a labor law decision, but more of a property law decision. So, as as everyone else learns. Property is not a yes or no question. In fact, property rights are a bundle of sticks, and you can take some out and give them to other people. Uh, for example, so you might own you might own the land, but not have the right to use it. I.e., if you are a landlord and somebody else is renting from you and has a lease, you can't just go on there. You might have the use of your property for your life, but you don't have the right to uh, alienate it or sell it. Um, or you might not have the right to do something economically on it. All of those rights can be separated out. That's why you can, for example, a husband and wife couple, one of them dies. The other one has the use of, has a life estate. So they have the use of the house for their whole life, but the ultimate ownership would then go to the children. So neither one of them has full ownership at that point. In this This case, when we need to get like Downton Abbey up in here. I think this would make more sense if we had like some kind of framing like this. In fact, I'm pitching that as a new idea for PBS is we're going to have a period piece where we just explore property rights. Sorry, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Downton Abbey and Pride and Prejudice are deeply, deeply property law involved. Well, so the Constitution, we've heard of that. Fifth Amendment, and as applied to the states, the 14th Amendment, government can't take your life, liberty or property without due compensation. Or without due process, and cannot take, sorry, and cannot take your property without compensation. They can't just kill you and then pay you. That's a mistake. I misspoke. So, uh, in this case, what they say several times in the opinion is that the right to own property includes the right to exclude. You can tell people not to come on your property with certain, you know, the police can come on if there if there is an emergency. If you're completely blocking somebody else's land. 
they have they may have an implied right to pass over your land, things like that. But the majority opinion essentially says that the state of California has taken part of this this nursery's rights, uh, i.e., the right to tell specific people not to come on their land, and that they have done so without compensation. So, essentially. I think the resolution to this issue will be that California will amend the statute and say, here is a token amount of money uh, for what is obviously it's not a particularly onerous intrusion. The labor organizers are not trampling, presuming they're not trampling on the crops or burning things down or whatever. Um, so California will pay a small sum of money to these affected businesses and then the law will continue to be in force. The, the the ruling was not that these was not that this law cannot happen. It's just that this is a form of taking their land, and so it requires whatever just compensation would be. So that's the that's the direction you'll think it go in, and not just uh, straight up union organizers can't go on property. I mean, I mean, they say several times in the opinion that the government does have the authority to regulate these things. It's just that, like. If the government wanted to, it could theoretically seize the entire orchard, and then it would have to pay the price of the entire uh, I'm nursery. Nodding. Sorry. I'm nodding. So, um, so this, <laughs> this is when uh, Ryan so, would yell at me again. <laughs> so this this lesser form of intrusion would require less money, but the government can still do it, assuming the law is passed properly. Properly, and you know, there's a process set up for the labor organizers to appeal if they're shut out and so forth. So I, I wouldn't, yeah, so I wouldn't say this is a huge setback. It's just another example of the court not really considering labor rights to be very important, frankly. Yeah. And well, and then the other thing that it does is you said it's a token sum of money and I get that, but there is something very symbolically um, depressing about the idea that you can mistreat your workers to the point where they should be unionizing. And then you get to whatever this small amount of money is you get to make money off of somebody trying to unionize them as well. It might be small, but there's still some, there's still a symbolic defeat in the fact that the state is paying you to let union organizers on your land. Like the reason they're coming to your land in the first place is because you're making too much money off your workers. I agree. I think frankly that uh, property law is a little outdated. We could move up to maybe one of the later yeah, yeah. Edwards. Um, you, you can strike law in that sentence, too. Yes, prop yes. Property is outdated. You heard it here, folks. Yes. Society uh, has moved beyond the need for property. Thank you. 100%. I agree. I'm excited to use the communal toothbrush. No, I, I know. Personal property and <laughs> private capital property. are very different. We're not, getting yeah, into this. We're not getting into this on this podcast. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, it's it's just it's it's frustrating because once again, it, even though it's not an insurmountable hurdle in any capacity, it's just as Noah said, it's just another way that the the courts and and everybody else have very clearly shown that labor and the people actually making the money off of the laborers um, don't care. And, and will continue to use whatever they see as theirs, including their laborers, um, however they wish. I do. Th the, I agree. It's it's more symbolically depressing than than a concrete problem. I do think this comes out differently if the laborers live on the property. I think right. court mentions that a couple of times. Interesting. Yeah. Because in a lot of cases, especially with these big corporate farms, like they they're living on the land. They're not. You know, they're, they're paying rents all on top of their or potentially paying rents on top of their wages uh, to not have to drive 100 miles to get off of the land. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a test case will work itself back up to the court on that. But they do mention a couple times that that would be a factor, whether it's a significant factor in their mind. You know, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, because it's it's, it seems on, like it's it one be. thing, right? It's one thing if your labor organizer is coming to your coffee shop to to organize you and and you can leave, but like you know, if you're you're a a migrant laborer, like you're not you're not in one place at one time. It's hard to meet up. Um, these labor organizers need to come to you to a certain degree, uh, especially and if you're working a twelve-hour day. They're famously resistant to giving out worker information. 
mm-hmm. um, in order to actually help labor organizers yeah. do the job. I, I, I'm sure now they'll they'll be claiming that HIPAA prevents them for some reason because that seems <laughs> to be the new excuse of the day. <laughs> I'm honestly kind of looking forward to that just so I can have a good giggle out of it. That's that's how we get out of our government some days. Yeah, a good giggle. I guess like the the one weird one was the um, fact that the Supreme Court didn't choose to hear a certain case based on uh, uh, whether or not the uh, somebody in the public sector. Yes, the the clerk declined to take up a case um, that would have let them perhaps extend extend Janus. Um, but they there was no reason given, so they um sorry Janice is the case that significantly went weakened the public sector unions. Um, sorry, I was laughing at the time we uh, looked up his name and somebody had changed it on Wikipedia, so that it said the plaintiff and Janice was Hugh Janice. <laughs> Love that. That was great. We might have to cut that joke out. Oh well. I, I also enjoyed how they they threw the guy they threw the guy goodbye party, but said the party was for union members only. Yes, so that he was wasn't so allowed petty. To... <laughs> this is what's called the shadow docket, and it's something that's worried uh, a lot of legal observers for the last few years, maybe maybe before. But this is what I've been seeing, um, and it's basically the the cases the court doesn't take or makes a decision on, but doesn't fully issue a full opinion on. Sometimes there'll only be a cent. Sometimes there won't be anything. Sometimes we won't even know which justices voted which way. But they can be just as influential as an actual full-on decision. But we, the public, have no idea how that decision was reached. Um, and fr- it will almost never get as much coverage as a full case. So that even on even on big cases, it'll just kind of die down. The issue will just kind of die down without a uh, as much public fervor as if they. And always, if they'd issued a full decision on it, we yeah, can usually sure. guess what the uh, the makeup was, but there's no way to know for yeah. sure. But yeah, anyway, so the details of this case that was not heard um, was this woman wanted to sue based on her First Amendment rights that she her First Amendment rights meant that she didn't have to join her teachers union if she didn't want to, and the court declined that. So they didn't really eliminate any. Um, rights are that are already there, or any labor power, as far as joining unions and union power. Um, but Noah and I were talking earlier, and it, it did seem to keep on what was what Roberts has already ruled, uh, which is private sector. You try to do what you can do, whatever you want. Public sector, that's where you go if you want to actually have rights. To I mean, super paraphrase what he said, there's there's a couple of possibilities, but. It- Either the facts weren't good for this, um, you know, for what they wanted to do, or the court realizes that it's got some controversial cases coming up and doesn't want to add to it and draw further fire, or even just that the justices think that where the law is right now is where it should be, and they're not planning on going any further, and they'll just let public sector unions kind of drown in their own, you know. Yes, drown under their own weight, basically. Yeah, because if I recall correctly, I don't remember any particular court cases but i know that other states have now made it illegal to strike for public sector workers um yeah including new york um um, so that's something new especially after the uh teacher strikes in what was it west virginia um west virginia oklahoma arizona there were like seven of them but the thing is some of those were also illegal at the time right right like Um, it's it's not uncommon for negotiations like that with public sector workers to end with uh oh and also this strike was legal and nobody's going to get in trouble yes so i think which shows that whatever the law is worker power uh is capable of overcoming resistance which is what i was going to say that we we've talked about it before on this show but one may one possible reason um and it kind of ties into what you said about the court knowing it's got controversial cases coming up and not wanting to rock the boat too much but we know that after janice there was a surge of public sector labor militancy and public sector unions had people step up and contribute more and try to organize more workers to sort of offset the possibility of well freeloaders um who were going to get bargained for but not you know pay dues into the union 
I guess where I'm going with this is that uh, bringing more of these cases at this point in time, or rather uh, trying to just eradicate public sector unions as much as possible at this point in time, might result in more of that in a way that maybe the the people that some on the court uh, may or may not be personally beholden to for some things, like in the amount of $100,000, might not want to see at this point in time. So I don't, I I mean, that's me being conspiratorial, but there's certainly a thing, I think, in, in, in the formation of this conservative majority on the court, I think we got more of an eye into why each person was selected and who was backing them and who was putting the money behind them and so on. And so you've got a little bit more, you know, this isn't like when Lyndon Johnson was shuffling guys around to name them ambassador to the United Nations or to get their dad to stop being attorney general or whatever the heck. There's, um, there's a lot more kind of outside influence coming into the process in a way that there, uh, that has become very, or that has been very clear from day one in a way that there wasn't always. That's true. Previously, pre- probably to about the eighties, perhaps, um, you know, Supreme courts were either people who they thought were the best lawyers in the country or people who they owed a favor to for, um, not running against them at the Republican convention or people that what they there were friends with, um, you know, some combination thereof. And now it's all politics and not the fun kind of nepotism. <laughs> okay. uh, there's a fun kind? I don't know. I think it's kind of fun when uh, JFK appointed his brother as attorney general. It's like, wow. well, he needs a little experience, you know, before he goes into private practice. Yeah, season him some. Oh, Lord. All right. Okay. Well, we'll <laughs> uh, stop this segment here. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about some of the slightly less bad things, I guess. Um I'm just full of optimism and hope in the year 2021. All right, we'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hey guys, welcome back to Punching Out. I am still Lou, and I am still joined by Noah. Still hi, y'all. <laughs> and still Greg. I, I I am still Greg, but I'll let you know if that changes. Excellent. So we spent the last segment focusing on kind of the, the downer points of the last Supreme Court session, um, which thankfully, as we discussed, wasn't too terrible, just kind of more of the same. Uh, so this time we're going to focus on some of the more lighter notes, not great notes, but less bad. Um, so the first thing is it's not actually a ruling, but it's a department rule change um, from the Department of Labor. And there's two of them. One is that focuses on the 80-20 rule for tipped labor. And the other one focuses on joint employers. I'm getting human resentments flashbacks already. Right. Just, just from talking about this. Yeah, so many words to say, uh, basically nothing. Yeah. You um, need to sneak back out of that mailing list. You've got to. I'm trying. I'm trying. They've got it <laughs> so boring. I think yeah. they found out I was on there. <laughs> They're like, guys, we're getting, we're getting owned. A radio the show in Western New York is making fun of us. Oh, this no. needs to stop. <laughs> All right. So um, let's start with the eighty twenty rule. So basically, it's it's a a rule that existed and then Trump came through and said, no, we're not doing this anymore. And then the Biden administration says, oh yeah, we're going to do that again, but with a few changes. Um, So the 80, 20 rule for context uh, refers to the amount of work in a week that a tipped worker can do. That's not directly related to the work that's getting them tips which is so clear and concise. And I don't think I need to do anything else to explain or elucidate that point. And we haven't even gotten into the new changes that the Biden administration was introducing. But I know we're reading this from an article that has every reason to make this seem as confusing and onerous as possible. But I'm starting to think that even if you were covering it in a 
remotely objective way, it would still seem pretty confusing. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and that's like the the article I pulled up was a National Law Review article um, and one other as well that was really pro thing. They're like, can you believe this? This is so confusing and convoluted, which, yeah, it's like that on purpose. Um, so tipped labor for anybody unaware is not subject to the same fi- federal minimum wage requirements that normal quote unquote labor is. So let's say you work uh, in a factory setting, your labor is subject to federal or state or local minimum wage laws. So you have to be paid a minimum of whatever it is in your area um, per hour. Tipped wage. So any job where you are basically in a position to earn tips regularly. So restaurant workers, um, service, uh, many service workers, you're not subject to the same minimum wage. And I think the federal tipped minimum wage is $2.81 an hour. So that's all of the money that your employer has to give you for doing their labor is $2.81. And tips make up the rest of your money. So this is a huge boon to employers. Like, I'm pretty sure on this show we have discussed how tipped work isn't good for workers um, because it allows all sorts of abuses as far as um, putting up with with abusive behavior from customers because you don't want to not get tipped. Tips not being distributed appropriately by your employer is an issue as well. Um, There's so many ways that this system of being paid um, is extraordinarily exploitative. So employers are going to do everything in their power to not pay you federal regular minimum wage of $7.25 or whatever it is in your locality. They want to pay you this. So this rule exists to limit the amount of work that an employer could make you do that would otherwise prevent you from earning tips. Yes. You get tipped cool. for, as a waiter, you get tipped for bringing food to people. You do not get tipped for rolling silverware or cleaning or folding napkins into bishop's hats so that they look cool when you sit down. So the Trump administration in their, you know, normal rudeness uh, decided that they just didn't want to deal with this rule anymore. We need to talk about how they did that though, because I, I think it is the wording of what they replaced it with is key here. They replaced the 80-20 standard with a reasonable time standard. Yeah. Which is one of many times, because we've talked about it before on this show, where the Trump administration, because it is made up of people who you know employ other people, and that's why a bunch of them uh, should be in jail and are not, and instead had to be forced out of positions like Secretary of Labor or Secretary of Health and Human Services or whatever, they are under this impression that bosses are reasonable people, which if you've ever worked for anyone, you know is at best dicey. <laughs> Frankly, I think the whole last 300 years of American American law has shown that the reasonable person standard is uh, extremely flexible um, <laughs> and that reasonable looks very different to different people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it would be nice if we could find some reasonable people before <laughs> we develop a standard based on them. And and honestly, in the year 2020, which I think is when this rule or 2019 is when they started looking at removing the rule. 2020 is when they finally axed it. We are all under the understanding that this reasonable amount of time means nothing. And basically anybody can come up and say, yeah, no, uh, yeah, you spent half your shift uh, cleaning dishes in the back. That was reasonable. The The reasonable is at this point just, I think, a wink to and an elbow nudge to employers saying like, yeah, do whatever the heck you want. Nothing matters. Yeah, the, the, the conservative ideology is very much about not micromanaging businesses. And this does kind of get into the nitty gritty of how businesses and how employees are spending their time. And they just don't want to do that. That's against their whole project. Right. So so the new 80-20 rule that the Biden administration reinstated plus, um, it changed some of the wording. It did say instead of um, 
before it had to be uh, like your any additional work that you did had to be uh, related to the work you were doing, but not necessarily tip generating. And they changed it to be it now has to directly support tip producing work, which is what what does that mean? Like, where's the line? And that's true of, I think, any HR related material to come out of a government body is it it could not be worded more confusingly. So on top of that, it can't be more than 20% of the hours during the week and it can't exceed 30 minutes block period. So you can't spend two hours folding napkins. Well, you can. You just get paid the regular wage for it. Yeah. Right. Which honestly, we could get around to this whole problem in this very confusing system and make it very easy if we just got rid of this wage gap and just paid everybody minimum wage. Which is a thing and that also made Biden, it fifteen dollars at least. Which is a thing that the Biden administration said it would do. Ha ha! They did. Yeah, it's like how the Obama administration was going to really push card check. Yeah, um, and he was going to go on strikes with people. He was going to hmm. get his comfortable walking shoes on. A uh, birthday party is like a strike. Yes, but in this case, the, I mean, the, the, we I think we're all in agreement on this, but. The the regulation is meant to be confusing because it is meant to allow employers to weasel around these things. Like uh, we've talked before on the show that enshrining one particular labor process, i.e. unions as collective bargaining agents, blah, blah, blah. The fact that there is one specific process is meant to allow corporations to devote all their resources to putting together union avoidance efforts and things like that. We talked last um, we're actually recording this before that episode comes out, but by the time this one does, it will have been in last week's episode. <laughs> Thanks for time traveling with me for a second there. Time traveling out. But Zoom. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, the inherent specificity of that process allows bad actors to find every weakness in it. But when you get government regulations on businesses, they are often worded in this weaselly way. So that even if you're a democratic administration and you, sadly for you, have to make certain overtures to unions and workers so that they won't, you know, just vo uh, vote for the Republican every four years, they'll, they'll occasionally give you a sop. They'll do um, this kind of thing, but they will make sure that there's still enough loopholes to where if you're the worker, and we talked about, we will have talked about this last week as well. Your only option is to obsessively document everything your boss does. But the thing is, unlike you, your boss is probably not spending hours folding napkins. It's probably not spending hours, you know, doing directly tip support uh, or sorry, directly supporting tip credited work, which means that they have all the time in the world to make sure that they can still steal your wages. You, meanwhile, your only option is to, on top of all the things you're already doing, also have a side job as your own paralegal. But if a bunch of workers got together, maybe they could have like, they could pay like one person who specializes in that and like that person could represent them in disputes with their boss. Hmm. Um, but that's probably not allowed. So it's um, not. I mean, we, we, that, that is what the topic of last week's episode <laughs> will have been. I, I disagree with you a little bit. No, I think it's, I think that kind of problem is inherent to regulating every job in the country with terms that are, you know, frequently changing and standards that are frequent, you know, and the law has to be, if it's flexible, then it's, then there's going to be loopholes. And if it's completely inflexible, then it's going to be probably useless. So it's kind of inherent to having a system of laws, but we could break the tie in favor of workers more than never. No, I completely understand. I think it's more kind of the resentment of, you know, we have a solution that, that exists and that we could take. And we're not doing that because, uh, number one, the Biden administration doesn't want to get hit with the communist label any more than it already is getting hit with it, which is saying something at this point or would be. Yeah. Well, okay, here's the thing, right? We're going to talk about another DOL rule change in a second here. And one of the things about that is we talked about this during the Trump administration on this show, that one of the things, the real lesson of the Obama administration is that you cannot do these things through executive order because you are making a bet that you will control the White House until the end of recorded history. 
right. which is going to be in about 40 years at the rate we're going. And it should have been like that should have been the lesson of the Obama administration. And I think what we're learning now is the Biden administration is learning that lesson and is learning that if they do all of these rulemaking changes, they can push the PR boost of we're doing all the hard work of walking around the White House, i.e. governing, apparently. But then when they lose to a Republicans go, well, we couldn't get anything through Congress. So, you know, that's yeah. the Congress that we technically controlled. Ish. Ish. Yeah. yeah. So, we, so we let the parliamentarian have a job. Right. Moving on. Yeah, I do want to talk about this other DOL uh, rule change. So this one is um, less complicated, I think, to understand. And it's about joint employers. Um, So the Trump administration, once again, in their infinite wisdom, changed what the definition of a joint employer. So the Trump administration tried to make it a very narrow application um, so that if like I work for McDonald's. Well, actually, I work for the franchise, but and McDonald's because they don't directly employ me uh, is not considered my joint employer, and therefore they cannot be um, held responsible for their policies that would affect me. For example, so the Trump administration tried to make it extraordinarily narrow, so that your employer is the person who hires and fires you the person who sets your work schedules and uh, conditions of employment uh, determines my rate and method of payment, or uh, I'm able to obtain employee records from them. So extraordinarily uh, narrow. So in that circumstance where I, the franchise employee that works for a franchise McDonald's, I only work for that franchise. I don't actually work for McDonald's because they don't sign my paychecks. So that's a very narrow ruling and it limits the, once again, the kind of collective action that, that somebody could take against or an employer. And then the, the other thing that it does is that under the Trump rule, if you were, say, contracted out, so if you're, I don't know, a museum and your food, to use a nominally sympathetic employer here. Um, and your food service is contracted out to somebody else, right? You you pay somebody else to come run the cafeteria for you. You would not necessarily, if under this rule, you would not necessarily be considered the employer of those people because not everything that they do job wise is through you. Yeah, yeah, because they don't because the the museum doesn't pay for you directly. Um, they don't employ you and therefore they don't have any responsibility for your safety or work conditions or anything like that. Um, So the Biden administration kind of reversed this rule and made it, I think a little more sensical. So they, they turned it into there's, there's horizontal and vertical employment. So if I work for two different restaurants, but they're sufficiently related enough um, and they both set my work hours and everything like that, those, those can be considered joint employers. Um, that's one way that that you could do that. And they're both, therefore, responsible for your work conditions. Um, the other one that is probably much more applicable, given the fact that everybody is subcontracted out all to hell, is the vertical one. So if I work for a museum or a hotel and I'm contracted out and I'm actually paid for by that contracting company, um, we can consider the hotel or museum or whatever uh, a joint employer because I'm working in that building, doing the work and labor for them, um, just being paid for, and my paychecks are being signed by somebody else. So I think this is a good rule that makes it a little bit easier to go after, you know, bad actors and everybody else. Um, and I think it's pretty easy to understand too. I, I mean, it's a, it it's important because otherwise you're gonna, you know. You'll 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 sue the museum if there's some sort of you know work workplace abuse. Uh, they'll say no, it's not us. Go sue Sodexo. Sodexo will say no, it's not us. Go sue the museum. They'll spend right. two years on court just on that. Right. And by that point, you know, you will have run out of money, and um, you will eventually settle for you know five dollars and a coupon for yeah. a free. Uh, I don't know something <laughs> from the gift shop. Maybe. I mean, it'll be like a 20% off at the gift shop, probably. That would be my guess. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a, 
honestly, I think it's a good rule. This one, the new one, like these are, you know, these these are not bad thing. I I I, I see Noah's point that it's really that these things aren't um are pretty small small bean stuff and are also possibly going to be impermanent if, if there's a Republican administration in the future. Spoiler, there will be. Um, I guess it depends. Are you looking at this as an alternative to getting legislation through Congress or are you looking at it as an alternative to nothing because it's better okay. than nothing, right. much like the Democrats? <laughs> yeah, uh, that that's the thing. Yeah. Like, it, it shouldn't be small bean stuff, right? If anything, I would say if there was somebody in the administration who had the capability of turning any of this into a message that actually resonated, like this is basically saying just because you're a temp doesn't mean you can't sue the boss that you work for every day. Like, you know, I work for a place that has a couple parts of it contracted out to other uh, other people, but they work full time in my building. There is no reason why they, if if they're harassed, if they're abused, if they're any of those things within my building, they should be able to sue my building as their employer. This is the kind of thing that I wish wasn't considered small beans. But my problem is that by essentially saying it's, it's fine that we can't get anything through Congress, it's fine that we can't get any labor policy through them, we're going to do this instead at least make a big deal out of the things you are doing instead. Instead of making it something where it it just kind of passes unperceived by most people, except for the lawyers who are going to try to defeat it in court, uh, human resources people who are mad that employers with a capital E have to deal with it, and us who are saying that, you know, this is a good thing. It It's something that I think a, an intelligent way to go about it would be to say, this is the kind of thing we're. <laughs> this is the kind of thing we're uh, we're doing for you. You know, this is the we can't get a workers' bill of rights. We couldn't get a fifteen dollar minimum wage through Congress. But here's something that our Department of Labor can do. Here's why you should vote for us in 2022, 2024. Here's why you should trust us with your future. And the fact that they're not doing that, uh, it's you know yet another weird signal there. No, I would say. Pretty much every worker, you know, reads the changes to the federal code. You know, they all everyone gathers in the uh, in the cafeteria every morning and just chats about it. So I think they're all pretty aware. I don't think we need to. Uh, I don't think they, we they need still to further emphasize readers, it. You know, while everybody's rolling the cigars, one dude's just there reading yeah. from uh, the the changes to the federal code day to day. Definitely. So moving on, we don't have one a lot of time to do this, and two, this is not the correct crowd for it. Uh, we are not what you would call sporty. Um, Excuse you. I here. like sports. I just like sports where the athletes get paid. Uh, okay, fair. If All right. that did include point you is, in. Point <laughs> is, this is not, um, you know, and plus we're, we'll probably talk about this in a future episode. Um, the biggest thing, I think, to come out of the rulings for the Supreme Court this round was definitely the NCAA ruling that basically said, um, while you don't necessarily have to pay your pay players directly, um, they can be compensated in ways other than just their tuition. And as long as they're tethered to education and you can't, you can't cap educational benefits that athletes receive. You can't say they can't get any more than this, which is given what, especially for some of the less popular NCAA sports, uh, the, the compensation levels that the NCAA mandates, we're pretty restrictive. So this is wild. Like you might see uh, right now, college football and basketball are kind of the major ones. And then baseball is kind of up there as well. or getting there. This means that theoretically the, the college squash championships might be a big deal in a few years. Yeah, I, I guess I, somebody could explain to me how and what, what it works like. That'd be squash cool. but- or NCAA. Sure. All of it, because none of it makes sense. I and the NCAA is just a hell mouth. Squash is like racquetball, except the ball is less bouncy, so you have to hit it harder. Yeah. What's okay, racquetball? so next explain racquetball. <laughs> yeah. Okay, racquetball, it's like <laughs> tennis, except instead of hitting it over a net, you both hit it off like you hit it off the wall, and the next guy hits it off the wall. And, and then, then explain what a wall is. 
<laughs> okay, all right, okay. Point is, um, so like, like I said, you know, I'm not, I'm probably notorious for hating college sports, but this is decent. And I know a lot of people who are into college sports were pretty excited about this, this ruling, which I think was a split ruling. No, was it unanimous? It was unanimous. It was unanimous. That was one Very of the surprising. wildest things about it. Who saw Brett Kavanaugh coming from the NCAA from the top rope, <laughs> both during oral arguments, which we already discussed don't matter. But the fact that he aggressively went after their lawyers uh, speech wise and then in the opinion also blasted them. He said something that was very interesting. I thought this was hilarious because it's Brett Kavanaugh we're talking about. Friend of the show, Brett Kavanaugh, not as much friend of the show as Neil Gorsuch. But Kavanaugh wrote that there is nowhere else in the United States that businesses get away with not paying their workers a fair market wage, which makes me right. wonder what United States he thinks he's living in. Yes. Well, I don't know if, I think fair wage and market wage are not the same thing. In fact, I would but... say they're diametrically opposite. Amen. They usually pay one of them, <laughs> you know, the lower one. Yeah, whichever one's lower, absolutely. Yeah, so this was a Gorsuch opinion, but the real action is in the Kavanaugh concurrence. So Gorsuch... Goes ah, through and, the dynamic and, duo. Yes, Gors- <laughs> Gorsuch goes through and basically says, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was started to stop railroads from being monopolies. Benjamin to Benjamin Harrison special, I think it's fitting right in there between those two Grover Cleveland uh, terms. In in deference to the radio, I didn't use a different metaphor. Um, <laughs> but basically says that uh, companies. Uh, that act in ways that restrict competition, that act together in ways that restrict competition are bad and not allowed, except for very baseball. certain circumstances. Well, baseball explicitly has an exception because it's an amusement, just, not a sport. Because a justice whose name I forget, 80 something years ago, loved baseball so much that he wrote an opinion about how he needed to marry it and it needed to be an anti, it needed to have an antitrust exemption. Um, nice. Now, it is, it is, it's always a little dicey with sports because there does. There does have to be some form of coordination in order to have rules and host games and things like that. So there, you know, there, there has to be to some degree. But the NCAA has coordinated, and they they don't own all college sports, but they own most of them and all the big ones um, to fix the wages of their employees, i.e., the student athletes, uh, at effectively zero. But you know, Scott, they regulate the scholarships and they regulate how much other money people can make, which is zero. The NCAA got in trouble a few years ago for attempting to regulate the salaries of coaches. And if they're going to do, th- if they can't do that, reasonably, they can't do the, um, you know, they, can- they also can't regulate what students make. Now, Kavanaugh's concurrence basically says, okay, we're going to strike down this rule, but also this case didn't bring up any of the other rules. Uh, that the NCAA has for limiting student compensation. And uh, sure would be a shame if someone brought those up and we had to blow those up too. So that was the real kind of newsworthy part about it, that the court is not going to look favorably on these rules in the future. I mean, this is kind of what I would expect from the broiest Supreme Court justice of all time. Um, Is it? That's that's not what I... I I regularly interact with with people who have a very good, well, they're not going to become Brett Kavanaugh, but they're kind of made from the same mold. And, uh, I guess not in favor of who was like, a... paid. okay. All right. Th- that's me owned. But the point is like, I, I don't know. I think there's, there's quite a, even among conservative or, or anti-labor people outside of the left, there is kind of an understanding and an acceptance that the NCAA rules make no sense and are extraordinarily exploitative. And yeah, they all love their uh, spring basketball tournament that shall not be named because they might sue, probably. Uh, April anguish. Yeah, there you go. Um, the <laughs> their, March their... Madness brings April anguish. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. Uh, th- like there, there is a pretty wide understanding and acceptance that these rules don't make sense and don't necessarily lead to better sport. Um, which, like the bros amongst the world out in the wild, that's ultimately what they care about. Like I don't think they actually care about you know fair compensation for squash players. 
I think they care that there's enough money floating around in their big football tournaments that that could drive and will drive more elite players. Just like the similar argument is that's why women's sports suck. 72 point air quotes is just because there's not enough money floating around in it. And then if we put more money in it and give them more thing, more, whatever, um, like I feel like those things are connected is the amount of money that they're, you're giving players and, and compensation will result in better sports. Cause that's what they feel about women's sports. I mean, it, I won't lie. It would be nice if, if, if college, uh, if college sports were literally like the boys in Mr. Murphy's history class going and, facing off against the uh, the college down the road and you know everyone everyone has a good time and shakes hands and gets all dirty and wears ridiculous striped shirts but that's not first first of all that's not how it is now and second of all that's never how it's been and they make it clear in the opinion they go back to the beginning of college sports and say people have been getting paid ever since the beginning and talk about people getting paid to transfer for one semester to play the big game someone saying oh I can't afford to graduate because people you know people keep paying me to stay at Princeton and I don't remember if it was rowing or football or what, but and if these if these sports are going to be huge multi-billion-dollar industries, which they are, it seems unfair that the people who are doing the majority of the labor, which is the players, uh, aren't getting paid. And I think a lot of people sense that instinctively, especially when it's not even that the college is paying them. In this case, it's you know they're forbidden from signing autographs down at uh, you know. I was going to say yeah. Joe's Crab Shack. That might be a Jameis Winston specific reference, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, down at a local business or endorsing or some something which cannot possibly right. have any impact on their their schooling. Um, I don't. I don't think. I just think there was no longer a reasonable argument against it. It's right. not the NCAA for making it, but the rest yeah. of us don't have to buy it. Uh, I I know we're running up against the clock. You'll want to hear my conspiratorial take on this. Yes, always. These are colleges and universities. This is just trying to rip out money from the educational parts of it. Because I'll tell you what, historically, when you do things like this, when you make college, when, whenever you introduce another expense into colleges and universities, the sports are revenue centers, but the revenue centers for the athletics department. You talk to anybody who works in an athletics capacity in any of these places who works as like a trainer or support staff or whatever, and they'll tell you that money does not leave the athletics office. It does not go to finance the rest of the university. It does not go into capital improvements. It does not go into faculty salaries. But you know what will go out of faculty salaries is if they have to compensate their players. And so I would I I don't think this is reason enough to say this is a bad thing. But what I will say is that I would expect you're going to see even more adjuncting even more, I mean, you're already seeing a point at which some college jobs expect you to pay for the privilege of teaching at a university. And now universities will use this as an excuse, which they don't have to do, but they'll use it as an excuse to keep doing it. I will take the less conspiratorial um, uh, road here and say that I don't remember which one, but one of Gorsuch or Kavanaugh, there was a big deal about how friendly he was to women because he coached women's soccer or volleyball. I'm I'm gonna go I, think was, I, I think it was Gorsuch because, as far as I know, Gorsuch is you know personal character is not in, in that in the same. Uh, See, this is why it's quite I can't possible tell the that difference. they just that that person just that person just has just seen their you know the people they coached in high school struggle with this and now uh, you know think that it's unfair having seen it yeah. from that side. I'm All not right. saying you're you're wrong, Noah, but that I yeah. think that might be a it, simple. It's certainly possible that is one of the few ways you can get right wingers in this country to care about anything. <laughs> All right, we got to wrap it up. Uh, and also next on Punching Out, NCAA, and maybe more. Uh, anyways, thank you guys for joining. I'm Lou. I was Noah. I'm still Greg. <laughs> this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at punchingoutwayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out, and remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.